Thank you for joining us in our first session of uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, we're glad to be able to offer this for those who are interested in looking into this book. If you've never studied the book of Revelation, I think you'll find this very uh, rewarding and uh, edifying too. Our format will be about 25 minute sessions. Uh, we will try to keep things to a, a close watch for time, respecting your time. We're considering uh, the possibility of having a question and answer session uh, later. We'll let you know about that. Uh, share your interest with Rory and uh, uh, Pastor Ray and we'll kind of com compare our notes. But our objective is to cover the key events and the key people of uh, the book of Revelation. We will not be covering everything, but we will be giving you a good working knowledge of what this book is all about. Uh, and we also want to bring out some practical things too along the way. Uh, but uh, today is our first study and we're glad you're here. Uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look at the beginning of the book of the Revelation. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word uh, what we have before us in this book is nothing we would ever have discovered unless you had given it to us. On our own, we would never know of these things. But you have given us this book, and it is our prayer that today as we begin that you will help those who are uh, listening to get an idea of what they can expect, but touch all of our hearts. This is not a head book. This is something to impact our lives. So we pray that we'll benefit from our study time together. Uh, again, help us as we look at this word, the last book that you've given to men. And we'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. Look at the very opening of the book of Revelation where you have the title, uh, the book of Revelation, but you have the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the book begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Key word being revelation. Uh, the word is unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Uh, think with me just a little bit about that word. In the history of our country, uh, different places at different times, uh, Communities have wanted to honor someone who's meant a great deal to them. And decisions were made in some of those communities to erect a statue uh, to publicly honor this particular person, man or woman, who has meant so much to them. Not only that, the person would know that they're being honored and, and respected, uh, but also when their time was gone as a generation, those that would follow would also uh, continue to remember uh, the wonderful things this man or this woman uh, had done for the community or uh, what they had meant to the community. When those decisions were made to erect a statue, uh, there were also other decisions about when they're going to have uh, the dedication, where they're going to put the statue, uh, how they're going to erect it. Uh, are they going to put it at the town square? Are they going to put it at a public park or make a new area for it, uh, maybe along a river or a scenic way <clears throat> where people could be able to see it uh, in front of a special building, whatever they would make a decision on where the statue was going uh, to be. 
And as the day of dedication drew near, plans would be made to make sure that the base was erected in the right way. Some maybe be elevated, some just on the ground. But when the base was ready and the statue was brought in and put on its place, the people were always careful uh, to make sure that the, the statue remained covered. Uh, there was a covering over it uh, so that no one could see it. That would be um, taken care of during the dedication. And when the final day of dedication would come, uh, there would be a lot of people there, there would be uh, an atmosphere, almost a celebration, a parade atmosphere, and at a particular moment, the covering would be taken away. And no doubt a, a band would play, probably a couple politicians want to say something, but when the covering was taken away, what they could not see before, the people could now see clearly because an unveiling had taken place. What they couldn't see before, now they could see clearly the unveiling had taken place. Now when we think of that, take that simple thought and look back to this book and think about the book <clears throat> the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Christ. The reason we have this book is that God wants us to see our Savior clearly. In fact, the reason that God has given us this book is that he knew that we needed to see more of our Savior now, let me try to explain that. That sounds, sounds kind of unusual. In the first century, the early church, they knew that Jesus was God's Son who had come from heaven into this world to be their Savior. They knew of His miraculous birth through the Virgin Mary. They knew of His earthly ministry and how He had filled three and a half years uh, with compassionate care, loving care, incredible teaching to everyone He came in contact with. Uh, that's what they knew about the Savior. They knew that out of his love and compassion for others, that's why he went to the cross. He did not die for himself. He died for us. He died for our sins so that we could have salvation with God forever, so that we could belong to God, not only now during our earthly life, but forever. And the church knew that. They knew that on what we call Easter, Jesus triumphantly arose from the grave. Uh, they knew that he had ascended and it was in heaven and that one day he was coming back. They knew all these things. And there was a great relationship, a love relationship that existed between the first century church and the Lord in heaven. Uh, that's why Peter says, even though you don't see him, you love him. Even though you haven't seen him, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There was a wonderful wonderful love relationship that existed between the believers of the first century and the Savior. We all know that. And the same is true of us today. We know about the gospel ministries. We love the gospel ministries. Uh, as a pastor in each church that Sarah and I served, uh, I was very careful to spend much time in the gospels uh, so that our people could hear about the Savior and see him and watch him interact with people on a daily or on a weekly basis so that they would have some idea of what the Savior wanted to do for them, what he was teaching them, and, and uh, how much he loved them. 
you can't get enough of the Gospels. You just can't. But there's more that God wants us to see when we come to the Savior. The main event of this book, and everything builds up to this one event, is the time that Jesus returns from heaven into this world in all of his power and glory. And the whole world sees it. And we will have not only on display the unveiling, not only the one who is our compassionate Savior, but the one who returns, who has come to rule the world for God. And that's what this book is about. We need to understand that side of the Savior, and that's what this book is about. There's a reason that I bring it up that way. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9, and I hope you've turned to your Bible. I do want to talk about the book of Revelation. We want to look at the verses, and uh, more so next week and the following weeks. We will be looking at chapters, and we'll be keying in on specific verses. So please, uh, don't just listen. Get your Bible so you can see this for yourself. But chapter 1 and verse 9, as John opens, he says this, I, John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, notice first of all where he is. John is at the isle of Patmos. This is a slave colony. Uh, this is something pretty close to Alcatraz. It is a place where criminals were sent to work in the mines. And the Apostle John has been sent there. A Roman Caesar by the name of Domitian has sent him there. Uh, it is an island of about four miles wide, six miles long. Uh, but people, most people didn't get off that island alive. John's in his 90s. He is the only surviving apostle at this point. The Roman government has now begun its official state persecution of the Christian church. And that's why John is put on this isle, and that's why persecution is happening on the mainland in Asia where he was pastoring. And it's a very difficult time for the church. Now, when John says that I am your brother in companion in tribulation, He's experiencing the tribulation, the, the, the hardship, just like they are. Now, let me, uh, just before I forget it, let me encourage you, John does survive this. Um, the emperor that put him there, Domitian, uh, will die right after this. And when a new Caesar takes his place, he removes the apostle John from the Isle of Patmos and allows him to go back to the area of Ephesus where he had been pastoring. Uh, it could be that it's there that he writes this book, but this is a happy ending for John. It doesn't end here on the Isle of Patmos. But we're being told something here. We know we have a wonderful Savior. He loves us. He'd do anything for us. He's already demonstrated that by giving up his life so that we can have salvation. And it's easy for us to love him just like the early church loved him. Uh, we all know what it means to be in love with a Savior, to have those moments where he means everything uh, to us. Um, it, it just is. It's a part of, 
uh, our DNA as believers. We love the Savior. But what, what will we believe about the Savior in the future if hard days come? What will we believe then? What will we do with our faith uh, if our world begins to crumble? That's kind of behind what's happening here. God knows that there are hard days coming for the church, and he wants them to know that their Savior, who is a compassionate Savior that we see in the Gospels, is also this majestic and powerful and awe-inspiring Savior that we can trust for anything at any time. And that's really the, the underlying question as we open this book. Uh, will we believe that Jesus is all we will ever need if our life falls to pieces? Uh, did they? Well, yeah, they did. Uh, the first church history tells us about that. They had a great love for the Savior. And the Roman persecution will begin, and there will be three different Caesars that try to annihilate the Christian faith, and they won't be able to do it because the Savior in his strength and his power sustains the church. But it's this that gives us a, a reason to understand just uh, why we're happening, what, what's going on here. Now, when John's on the Isle of Patmos, he's praying, he's having this time with God, uh, asking God for direction, no doubt asking God to take care of the people who are back on the mainland. And as he's having this time of worship and thinking, uh, he enters a vision. That's when God enables you to see something that you couldn't see by yourself. And at this particular point, John enters a vision, and that's what he talks about in chapter 1. Notice in verse 10 again. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's in the Spirit. This is this vision on the Lord's Day. And it said, he says, I heard behind me, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists those churches. In verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candelabras, I'm going to use that, lampstands, and in the middle of those candelabras, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, girt about the chest with a golden girdle, his head and hairs were white like wool, uh, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, and if they, as if they burned in a furnace, his voice, the sound of many waters, and on and on. And in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. What happens is that as John enters this vision, he hears a voice behind him, and as he turns, he sees the Lord in all of his glory. Now remember, the book is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The unveiling. And he turns around and he sees the Savior in his glory. You will remember in Matthew 17, there was a moment in the Lord's uh, earthly ministry when in the Mount of Transfiguration, for a moment, the glory of his deity began, began to show through. When he was praying, his face became white. You remember his clothes as white as lightning. And, and for a moment, there was just a glimpse of what's always been there. He is God's son coming out. Jesus didn't want that scene during his earthly ministry, so he, he quickly kind of tuned that down. 
But here, John sees the fullness of the Savior. What I want you to notice is that John, he knows the Savior very well. He's known him for years, three and a half years of earthly ministry, being with him constantly, loving him. He knew him. He saw the resurrection. He saw him ascend into heaven. John knows the Savior well. But as he turns and sees the Savior in all of his glory, he has never seen anything like this. And that's when he makes the statement in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, listen to this statement. I'm watching my clock here. I've got about five minutes before my buzzer goes off. Listen to the statement because it's important. John is not afraid of the Savior. He's not afraid. He is simply being overwhelmed by his glory. He's not afraid. He is overwhelmed by the Savior's glory. And the reason I share that with you is because that's what's going to happen to you and me when we enter heaven. When we see heaven because of our faith in Christ, uh, our breath will be taken away. We'll be captivated by all the things that we see and begin to learn in a brand new, very, very good world. And when the moment comes for us to see the Savior making his way to us, and when God's eternal Son makes his way to us personally, and he's right there in front of us, we will have the same response and we will not be afraid, but we will be overwhelmed. Notice what happens next though in verse 17. It said, he laid his right hand upon me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Imagine what it's gonna be like for you in heaven to see the actual Son of God in all of His glory. You will be overwhelmed, and I will be too. But imagine what it's going to be like for you when you actually feel the hand of the Savior press upon your shoulder. And when He calls you by name and says, don't be afraid, I am your Savior. I died for you. There's nothing to be afraid of. And in that one moment, you will have not only a full understanding and deep love for the compassionate Savior we see in the Gospels, but at the same time, an understanding of what it means that He is the Son of God, who will rule this world for God. And those both things are, are happening right here, and that's just an incredible thing. We'll talk more about heaven in just a minute, but I want you to see this too. The book is to help us to understand the truth of our Savior. There's more we need to see than just the Gospels. God wants us to understand what's coming in the future. And in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, that's us, things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel, unto his servant, John. Let me see if I can take this apart and make sense out of it. God has commissioned his son to let believers know what's gonna happen in the future. God is gonna use John, he's gonna take John to heaven so that he can see all the future unfold that this book talks about it. And he's gonna use an angel 
to help John as, he, as a personal escort through these events. And John's going to write down what he sees. But God wants us to know what's happening in the future. We have a Savior, a glorious Savior, who will return to this world. God wants us to know what's going to happen in this world. And that's why we have this. This is what Jesus said just before uh, he was crucified in his last week. We're familiar with this. You're familiar with this. And this refers to the time that we are going to be looking at that's covered in the book of Revelation. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. Jesus says, You will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that, that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not here yet, but it's coming. Uh, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in different places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. He says later, there shall be a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of this world to, uh, to this time, no, or will ever be after that. This is what we're looking at. We're looking at the glory of our Savior who will return to this world as the Son of God to rule the world for God and for good. But we'll also see how it all happens, how the life in this world will unfold, and how very difficult it will be for believers who live in this world during that time. Hey, we made it through chapter 1. <laughs> well, there's a lot more I could say, but my time is about gone. I have actually, actually two minutes so I'm not going to try to cover any more before my alarm goes off. But I hope this sets the stage for the book of Revelation. God wants you to see your Savior clearly. He wants you to love the compassionate side of the Savior. But he also wants you to have total confidence that if hard days come to you, you have a Savior that's worthy in all of his glory to take care of you. He should be enough no matter what happens for your life or for mine. So I hope that you'll be able to enjoy the study with me uh, as we uh, look at the book of Revelation together.